We are in Romans chapter 12, verse 16 this afternoon. Um, Let me give you a bit of context about where we are in this series as we've been going through over the past few weeks, as Neil and Ryan have taken us through uh, a couple of passages before. But where are we in the Bible? We're in the book of Romans, and it's a book written by Paul the Apostle. An apostle is a sent one, and Paul was sent by God to preach to the nations. And he was a man who was imprisoning and murdering early church Christians. The early church were being persecuted by this man, Paul. But he was saved miraculously by Jesus and was moved by Jesus to serve him and spread the message of Christianity to the known world. And he wrote around 13, it's debated, but around 13 books to the churches that he planted. And one of those churches was a church that was right in the center of Rome. The epicenter of civilized, um, the, the civilized world at that time, although we look at Roman culture and tradition and maybe we'd argue differently. But certainly in those times, Rome was this, this uh, bastion of civilization. And Paul took the gospel to Rome. Where are we in the book of Romans? We're in chapter 12. And Paul is teaching the Roman church how to fight against evil around them. Not by repaying evil with evil, which is what the Roman Empire was known to do, but by doing the polar opposite of evil, by bringing the light of Jesus Christ into those situations that they were faced with every single day. Bringing light into situations where evil was prospering. And we know that when we switch a light on in the darkness, light just dominates and floods out and changes the whole atmosphere. And that's what the gospel does. And that's what we're finding in the book of Romans uh, as Paul is preaching to the church. I'm preaching to us an extension of the church down the ages. And the big ideas from the previous sermons that we've had in this part of the book of Romans, we overcome evil with genuine love. I believe that was you, Neil, who took us through that one. And then the next part of this passage that we're going to be in, Ryan took us through, we overcome evil with genuine generosity. And what we're going to be looking at today is in this passage, we are seeking out how to overcome evil. With genuine humility. Genuine humility. We're going to read Romans chapter 12. We're going to read from verse 9 through to the end of the passage. But our main focus is verse 16. So let's read that together. Marks of the true Christian. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honour. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Save the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Here's the verse we'll be focusing on. Live in harmony with one another do not be haughty but associate with the lowly never be wise in your own sight repay no one for evil but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all if possible so far as it depends on you live peaceably with all beloved never avenge yourselves but leave it to the wrath of god for it is written vengeance is mine and i will repay says the lord to the contrary if your enemy is hungry feed him If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. 
for by doing so you will heap burning coals on his head. And this last verse, which should be the refrain that we hear at the end of each of these verses, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So we're going to be in verse 16 together. I wonder what comes to your mind when we think about the emotion of pride. The emotion of pride. Is it maybe a badge? Newcastle United, maybe. Maybe you have pride in Newcastle United, Ryan. Certainly from their achievements this year. Lack of pride in Liverpool Football Club for not qualifying for the Champions League. Um, maybe it's a personal achievement that you've succeeded in. Maybe you're the sort of person that when you've managed to set up a piece of IKEA furniture, a flat pack piece of furniture, all by yourself, you take a photo of it and you post it on Instagram for the world to see. Maybe it's that sense of achievement that you get when you do something that you're proud of. See, they're not necessarily evils, are they? But our world is full of pride that is evil. Take, for example, a, a few weeks ago, I hope I get this guy's name right, but the Belarusian president, uh, Alexander Lukashenko, get that right? Alexander Lukashenko. Um, and he, he was, appeared on television doing a, an interview and he spoke nonchalantly and humorously about taking in Russian tactical nuclear weapons See, there's a man whose pride has been puffed up for years and he speaks of war as if it's nothing. A proud man, an evil man, and he's a product of sinful humanity. And yet even we encounter pride of the evil kind in our day-to-day lives, don't we? In others, and we see it creep into ourselves as well. In all of us, there is this prideful self-service sickness Hoping we get put up on a pedestal ourselves. And I don't just speak to you about that. This is me as well. The headstone of humanity could very well read this when it's all said and done. Who celebrated me? Who celebrated me? Who's celebrating me? I should be put up on a, on a pedestal. And that is the, the cry of prideful humanity. See, the word of God is very clear on this sin of pride. In Proverbs chapter 11, it says, When pride comes... Then comes disgrace. But with humility comes wisdom. Proverbs 16.5 says, The Lord detests all the proud of heart. Be sure of this. They will not go unpunished. In Proverbs 16.18, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. You've probably all heard of that phrase in some way, but that comes from the word of God. See, God is clear that pride is an evil thing. And yet... This isn't God's intention for me and you. It's not his intention. A world that isn't self-serving but is selfless is God's intention. That's the perfect world that we all want. Humbleness and service of one another. And one day, those who are part of the church of Jesus Christ will experience that forever in the new creation. The kingdom of God forever. That's what this book speaks of. The final book in the Bible, Revelation, is a prophecy of future glory with God for eternity. And that place is going to be perfect. It's going to be truly wonderful. And it'll be a place where we serve one another and serve God without pride at all. What a glorious day that will be. But what about now? What's Paul telling the Roman church now to do concerning pride as they fight evil and they seek to overcome pride in an evil world? See, Paul has been pointing the Roman church to Jesus as the antithesis to all that is evil. 
And it's observing his life in the Gospels and his death in the Gospels and his resurrection in the Gospels that uh, we see true humility and true selflessness. It's Jesus who we should imitate now, those of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus, as we combat evil and pride in our world to show the world genuine humility, not a false humility, humility that everyone's capable of, everyone's capable of humility to a sense, but what is genuine humility that is born of God and born through a love of our humble King, Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul is pointing the, uh, the Christians in Rome and us today to in this passage. So let's get into this passage. We're in verse 16 and we'll see here three ways that Paul is encouraging the Roman church and us readers today to combat pride and show Christ-like humility. So what's the first one? If you read the passage there, it says in verse 16, live in harmony with one another. Live in harmony with one another. See, Paul has given the Roman church a command to step into each other's lives, to be selfless, not to think you are above aiding that person and that situation that they are in. See, this isn't just being harmonious with one another and smiling at one another as we walk through the door and simply asking, how are you? How are you doing? They're lovely things. They're fantastic things. But Paul is asking us to go deeper. Paul's commanding the church to be willing to step into fellow believers' situations and provide aid and support. Um, if you want to turn there, you can turn there. It's one book backwards in the Bible. It's the book of Acts, chapter 2. It's the Acts of the Apostles, and this is like the birth of the Christian church. This is where the Christian church, after Jesus has ascended to heaven and given them this great commission to go and tell the nations and serve one another as the church, um, th this is what we see in Acts, chapter 2. Let me read this to you. At the end of the passage of Acts, chapter 2, it says, verse 42, and they devoted the Christians themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to breaking of bread and prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favour with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. See, what do we see here in terms of generosity, living in harmony with one another through the Christian church? The believers were given to one another. When they saw a need, they stepped in. These disciples of Jesus, they weren't proud people. They were humble. They didn't keep themselves at a British social distance, I suppose we could call it from fellow believers. In a world all about self, they humbled themselves in a very countercultural way and they stepped into one another's situations. That's a, that's a beautiful thing. It truly is a beautiful thing where the church of Christ is able to humbly step into each other's lives and support one another to provide financial aid, to pray for one another through various struggles and trials, to walk with brothers and sisters through difficulties, it's what Paul is calling the Roman church to do. And he's calling us as a continuation of the saints from then on to now to do the same. We're meant to be a sweet aroma to the world. Outsiders are meant to be looking in on us, on our humility and our harmonious living. 
and see gospel community living. That's what they should be seeing. They should see the gospel, the change that Jesus brings in our lives, in our day-to-day lives as the church. One example of this, very recently, welcome prices. It's so good to have you here. It really is that you've arrived here safely in England, that you're part of our church, but we didn't know you. Um, we were praying for you and we were excited to welcome you in. And what we did a few weeks ago is we went round and unboxed a whole load of boxes in your house and helped set up that house. Now, I'm not saying that from a private point of view, but one of the things that came from that is that Barbara, correct, am I correct, Barbara, over the road, um, this neighbour was touched by the harmonious living that was shown in the church. She's like, well, why are you doing this? You don't know these people, they're coming over from America. Americans are weird, that's what she said. Um, Um, And she was just amazed by what was going on, seeing these people who'd never met the prices doing something so kind and generous. And we don't say that from a private point of view. We do that because we are the church. We do that because we love one another. Because even though we might have believers on the other side of the world, we are a family. Uh, We are the church, the body of Jesus Christ. So what should this look like? as that is an example there, in application. Like the early church, step into one another's lives. Step in. Don't serve from afar in prayer only. Prayer is obviously an amazing thing that we need to devote our time to and pray for each other's situations, but if we can, how can we step in? Humbly give our time, our space, and our energy and our money to serve one another. That's one point of application there. The second point of application, which I think is really difficult to do and it is for me personally like that early church in acts chapter two be open to opening up your life and allowing people to step in i think that's harder it's very easy to go and serve people but when it comes to opening up your own life for people there's that barrier of pride there and i think many people in this church and like in our own church that can be the more difficult thing to do see none of us are above this None of us are above needing help. We have to be open. We have to receive. Don't be a closed book. Don't be standoffish. Don't be British again with your life, with fellow believers. It's so easy to walk into church and say, oh yeah, I'm okay, don't worry. Whereas actually you're you're, you're peddling water like crazy. We need support. We need to serve one another and we need to be open to serve one another. We need to humble ourselves and allow others to step in. That's a challenge because it means showing weakness and showing our vulnerabilities. But it's exactly what the Acts chapter 2 church did for one another. And we should too. Fight against evil in our world by living in harmony with one another. What about the second point there? Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. What's haughtiness? What is haughtiness? Haughtiness is the sense that you are better. You're just better. That's what haughtiness is. And what's Paul calling the Roman church to do? He's calling them to not elevate themselves or go above others. He's saying, don't be condescending. Be approachable. Be friendly, compassionate and humble. See, the Roman church would have been a very diverse church, set in a very diverse community. If we read in that book of Acts again, we know that Roman centurions and governors were saved and added to the church, the highest of the high in the Roman um, in the Roman population, but also from the so-called mob. So when the Roman Empire, uh, you know, they had their citizens, what the emperors were calling them was, that's the mob. They hated them. They just wanted to 
you know, keep them calm all the time, but they really didn't have much time for them. So this church would have been diverse. There would have been Roman centurions, governors, and there would have been the mob together in one meeting. And that's, that's the beauty of the church right there, by the way, that the church brings a diverse community together, all centered and brought together by Jesus Christ. See, there's no hierarchy of who Jesus calls. He calls everyone from the castles to the highway. He calls everybody. He calls the king and he calls the beggar to himself. To see those early Roman church meetings would have been something else. And Paul was calling those who in earthly terms would have been put on a pedestal to humble themselves and associate genuinely with those of a lower earthly status. See, Jesus preaches about haughtiness and humility in a parable. A parable basically is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. He was trying to explain something in a simple way so that people could understand. And what he used was a parable called the Pharisee and the tax collector. And if you know this parable, it goes something like this. The Pharisee and the tax collector go into the temple to pray. And the Pharisee goes to the front at the very center, right in front uh, of the altar. uh, And he prays and he prays out loud. And he says, Father God, I thank you that I'm not like this guy sat in the corner, this tax collector. I thank you that I'm not like him. I thank you that I'm better than him. I thank you that in every way I do this. I pray three times a day. I um, give money, lots of money, loads of my money to charity. And he just went on and on like this. Whereas the tax collector humbly went down to the side of the room in the corner where no one could see. And he prayed. See, no one would want to approach this Pharisee, this religious leader. You can just imagine the wide birth others gave him. There's this stench of haughtiness and pride. It's not a good look. Yeah, he might have known the scriptures, which was an honourable thing and a good thing. But he weaponised it. He used it in a bad way, an evil way, a prideful way. And yes, maybe he was more educated than the tax collector. But there was a proudful, horrible man. See, the Pharisee had no right to be haughty. He was a sinner. He was a sinner. Like me. Like you. And whatever our station... Whatever our age, our gender, our race, we're all sinners. We're all united in what this word, this Bible calls, the the word of God calls us broken human beings. That's how we humble ourselves right there. We're sinners. Before a holy God, we've messed up. We're sinners. In Romans chapter 3 verse 10, it says this. None is righteous, no, not one. That word righteous means good and holy. And the Bible tells us that we're not. There's only one person. Whoever had the right to be haughty, and that's Jesus Christ. The one who died on that cross. He is the only one who is, has the right to be haughty. He was eternal. He was all-powerful. The Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. The Son of God. The one whom all things were created. The future judge of all things. That's Jesus And let me tell you about this, about Jesus. Let me tell you this about Jesus. He didn't stay in heaven. He didn't stay from afar and judge humanity from afar. He left the throne room of heaven. He left the beauty of the heavens to associate with humanity. Philippians chapter two, verse six. I'll read this to you. You can turn there if you want. It says this. Who, Jesus, though he was in the form of God, 
He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, to cling on to, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. See, that Jesus, the Son of God, he became one of us and he lived among us. He was one of us, flesh and blood. If he'd have come to earth now instead of 2,000 years ago, he'd have associated with people like me and you. That's what he would have done. He would have sat with us. He would have walked with us. He would have talked to us. He would have ate with us and dined with us. He would have hung out with us. That's how much Jesus, God's son, cares about us as a fallen race. Let's not overlook the incarnation of God. Okay? We often focus on, this, on the, the sacrifice of Jesus, which we will do in a few minutes' time. But let's not overlook the fact that the incarnation... God become flesh. That's what that means. How important that is. That God descended to the earth and became one of us. If anyone had the right to be haughty, it was Jesus. If anyone had the right to say, do you know what? I'm good. I'm okay. When he had to look at us and not associate with sinners, it was Jesus Christ. He was the perfect God and perfect man compared to dirty, wretched sinners like me. And yet... What does Jesus decide to do? He descends rather than condescends. And he meets humanity where they're at, in their sin, in their mess. And he communes with them. He eats with them. He eats with a tax collector called um, Zacchaeus, who was, everybody just looked at this tax collector and thought, what a horrible guy. They were haughty. They looked over him, quite literally. Um, and, uh, and yeah, they, they, they yeah, Yeah, Jesus didn't do that. Jesus looked at Zacchaeus and saw him as as somebody he wanted to commune with and dine with and points them to a better way. Jesus also says to um, the adulterous woman, he says, go and sin no more. He doesn't leave her in the state that she was in. He says to her, go and sin no more. See, that's the sort of God that we worship. He's not distant. He's imminent. He's near. He's not a God who says, go and clear yourself up. And then I'll think about associating with you. He's a God who comes to us and shows us that we can have a relationship with him despite being broken. And he promises to make us holy. And I want to tell you this today, standing on the truth of God's word, that Jesus wants to meet with you where you're at. He wants to meet you where you are at right now. Not where you are in 10 years time. Not where you are in 50 years time when you've cleared up whatever it is that ails you, whatever it is that distresses you. Jesus wants to meet you today where you are at. Jesus wants to meet you where you're at. It doesn't matter what baggage you've got. It doesn't matter whether you feel proud or worthless. It doesn't matter whether you're in debt or you're greedy and selfish with your money. It doesn't matter whether you're physically ill or um, of good physical health. He wants to meet you and he wants to change you from glory into glory. For your good and for his praise and his honour. And what do we need to do in return? We just need to humble ourselves. We need to humble ourselves and say we need your help, Jesus. So in application, what should we do? We should meet people where they're at, like Jesus did. Like Jesus, associate yourself with those that others would not. We need to meet people where they're at and not wait for them to become better. See, what is it in our context, in our own time, that compares to stooping down and washing people's feet? That's exactly what Jesus did at the Last Supper. He bent down and he washed his disciples' feet. That wasn't, that wasn't above him. 
he stooped down and washed their feet. We should do that for one another. See, if Jesus Christ became incarnate in the year 2023, he would have been found with who? And we need to reflect on that and we need to do the same. We need to associate with the lowly. See, Jesus lives in us. Wherever we go, we take him with us. If we're born again Christians, are we restricting the power of Jesus in our lives to areas of comfort? Are we doing that? See, I don't find table in the park comfortable. <laughs> and I was speaking to Neil about this last week and I didn't find it comfortable because um, there were loads of school lads walking around and for some reason I didn't want them to see me behind the table. Maybe because they were walking around with stuff that I shouldn't be seeing them with, I guess so. But maybe that's my pride. Maybe I need to work on that. Am I restricting the power of God in those moments? Fight against evil by associating with the lowly. And then the final point, never be wise in your own sight. Never be wise in your own sight. Uh, thinking humbly, that's what this means, to think humbly. It's a posture, it's a mindset of humility and our own decision-making. It's not believing you know everything and know best in every situation. It's actually being humble enough to say, I don't know what's best and that I need to look to the well of all knowledge for wisdom and that well of all knowledge is God himself see Paul is calling the Roman Christians to fight the evil around them by submission to God and taking trust in his sovereignty in moments that would tempt them to choose a route that they felt like was best to take that's what never be wise in your own sight that's what um, Paul is calling the Romans to do see we know the struggles that the Roman church faced uh, Emperor Nero, which was mentioned a few weeks back, Emperor Nero was this guy who absolutely hated the Christian church and he blamed them for um, many things. And to reject their faith in the face of peril to preserve them and their families and their friends' safety and even lives would have been to them the wise decision to make in their own sight. See, what's Paul calling them to do here? He's calling them to trust in God's will for them and not their own supposed wisdom. So we feel that pull too, don't we? I do anyway. I definitely feel that pull because when things get difficult to pursue a solution that doesn't involve God, sometimes seems like the easier response. See, Jesus, let's go back to Jesus because he's the antithesis of all that is evil in this world. He's the antithesis to pride. Let's look at an example from him. Jesus shows submission to the Father's will. And if he does, we should do that too. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, which is the place that he was in before he was arrested and taken to the authorities and eventually tried and crucified. See, Jesus in the Garden, he accepts the Father's will and he follows through with the Father's plan of salvation, which he knew in his omniscience, in his all-knowing nature he knew that was going to cost him greatly cost him greatly more than anything that would ever cost us anything it was going to cost jesus so much jesus sacrificed his will for the father's will in that moment so that you could put your trust in the salvation of god and enjoy the purpose and identity that he gives you in your new freedom see luke chapter 2 says this this is what jesus says as he's knelt on his knees and he's praying to the father he says father if you are willing remove this cup from me the cup represented what was about to come this 
a horrible death and the spiritual pain that he's going to experience. But this is what Jesus says. Listen to this. In all of his humility, he says this. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. But yours, Father God, be done. See, Jesus humbled himself before his father. He himself fought the evil of pride. See, in that moment, every fiber of Jesus's human body and his mind in that moment are struggling between fight and flight. He suffered just like me and you. So I know that was true for him. His muscle fibers were twitching to take off out of that garden and find whatever means of exit from Jerusalem he could find to preserve his flesh and his soul from the physical and spiritual onslaught that he was gonna experience in those next few hours. But Jesus firmly resolved himself and delighted himself in the Father's will and sovereignty. See, he fights off any pride in that moment, being pressed onto him by the enemy. And Jesus went to that cross and he paid the just and fair penalty of our pride and our sins. Philippians chapter two, verse eight says, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He humbled himself, the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, the creator of the universe, the one through who all things were created, humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And then what do we believe as Christians? We don't believe he stayed dead. He rose again to provide the door to that perfect kingdom that we all want, that eternal kingdom to be with him. See, whilst we are in our sin and our pride, Christ died for us, giving up his rights for our sake. God in flesh gave up his rights for our rights. He had every right to leave us in our sinful pride, every right. But he bowed to the Father's good plan of salvation and sternly faced the path that God the Father had set before him. See, he didn't run from it. He faced it up. He gave up his rights and he served his Father. And we benefit from that massively. We benefit from that so much because we now, if you're a Christian, you now have salvation through Jesus's humility. Let's praise God for the humility that he showed us. And also praise God that we live in a time and place where we don't suffer the persecutions that that Roman church faced. So application for this should be a whole lot easier for us. Um, like Jesus, humble yourself to the will of the Father. Trust his will and his plans for you. A famous passage in Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 3, where we heard Proverbs tell us that, um, that pride was a, a, a horrible sin, a, a sin that really takes us away from God. And then in Proverbs chapter three, chapter, it's Proverbs chapter three, verses five to six, this is what it says. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. He will. See, in moments of uncertainty, where your human desires and your pride seem to know what's best for you. Scrap that. Trust in the Lord. The word of God is simple. It makes it simple for us, simple-minded people like me. Trust in the Lord. See, I don't know what's going on in your life right now, unless you're part of this church family. 
and you've shared with us how we can pray for you. And that is the beauty of the church, as we've said in the first application, that we should open our lives to one another. But I don't know what you're going through. I don't know where you're at. I don't know what difficulties you're facing. Know this. He makes, your, he makes ways straight. That's what the word of God says. He makes ways straight. That doesn't mean he straightens the path. Okay? It doesn't mean he's going to straighten those paths. It doesn't necessarily mean he's going to remove those difficulties. But if you trust in him, he'll make your vision clear through those moments to look to him for strength. But you only need to be humble and humble yourself before a God who is sovereign. See, there's a book in the Bible called Job. And Job is this guy who trusts in the Lord. But there's everything that he has just gets taken away from him. Everything is removed from him. Um, it's an interesting story. I recommend reading it, but it's a, it's a long book. But Job fights off the urge to deny God's sovereignty. He trusts in God. He trusts God in every moment. And I suppose there's this moment at the end where his trust is starting to wane. And God tells him, listen, I'm the one who created the universe. I'm the one who, uh, who commands every bird of the air and every fish of the sea. God is a sovereign God who has control of every minute detail of this universe. Even when we see evil and pride and difficulties and people doing their own thing, the word of God tells us to trust God. So whatever it is that you're going through, the Bible, God's word tells us, trust in him. He will make ways straight. Fight evil and pride by nurturing a robust confidence in the sovereignty and goodwill of God Almighty. Because he is almighty. He is powerful. And he will make your ways straight. So in closing, fight against evil by living in harmony with one another. That's what we should do as a church. We should fight for one another, fight against evil and live in harmony. Open up your life to people and step into people's lives. Fight against evil by associating with the lowly. Where should we go? Where should we be taking the love of Jesus Christ into whose lives? See, Jesus associated with the tax collectors and the sinners and he was found eating with the lost. And we should do, to, do that too. Fight against evil by associating with the lowly. Fight evil by nurturing a robust confidence in the sovereignty and good will of God Almighty. See, God is in control of all things. Let's trust him. And why do we do these things? Because we want to show this prideful world, because that's what we live in. We want to show this prideful world genuine humility. Not a humility that comes from ourselves, but from Jesus and his love shown to us. We must humble ourselves because we want to show the world our great humble King Jesus. We want to point the world to this, the cross, that Jesus gave up all of his rights and stepped down from heaven, knowing that he was going to that thing of execution, that Roman cross of execution, to save us from our sins and to rise again and give us life as well. That's what we want to show people too. That's why we do this. That's why we fight evil and pride with humility, because that humility is not from us, church. It comes from Jesus Christ. And we want to show people that. And we humble ourselves in such a way that people would see the living, humble King Jesus through our lives. I want to challenge us with this as we close. Let our lives be living sacrifices 
to Jesus. Not for our glory, but for his glory. Let, let, let me finish with this as well. If you're not a Christian, if you're not a Christian, you're so welcome here. The Bible tells us that there is this King Jesus who, as we've seen there, he humbled himself to come to earth and he wants to associate with you. And all he asks of you is that you bring your, your difficulties, your sorrows, your sickness and bring them to him. And he, he has his arms, arms wide open for you. And he wants to accept you into the church, into the family of God. And I, I would implore you, consider him, consider him, because he's made a, he's a massive change on my life. He's given me eternal life. And he's given me a purpose and an identity. And I want you to have that too. So why don't we pray? Why don't we close? And then uh, we're going we're gonna to sing. And then we're going to approach the table. We're going to uh, remember the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. Uh, Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the challenges that we find in, uh, in Romans, in uh, this book that Paul wrote, this man who his life was completely turned upside down. And I thank you for those of us who know you, our lives have been completely turned upside down for the good, for the better. We thank you that you're, you're changing us, you're making us new, you're humbling us. I pray that we would show genuine humility to the world, Lord. I pray for those who don't know you, Lord. I pray that they would consider Jesus and who he is and what he's done for them father i pray that as we sing now we'd 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 show our genuine love for you uh, in, our, in our voices and i pray that as we leave this place lord that you'd you'd help us to um, to serve you in the difficulties and the trials and the struggles of life life's not easy but we thank you that you've given us a hope for the future that we are on our way towards glory but we've got to live in a way that shows Christ and shows his humility. Help us to do that by the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray these things in your son's name, Jesus. Amen.